Well, isn't it great to get back to our study of the book of Matthew? I love Jesus. I love His work. I love His words. And it's so good to be back in this gospel. If you're new with us, back in 2018, we began a verse-by-verse look at this magnificent gospel, Matthew's gospel, taking a few short breaks along the way. But now we're in the final stretch, really. Jesus is literally on the road to Jerusalem, leading in to the final week of His life before the resurrection. Now, there's a lot in these nine chapters, even before the crucifixion, the triumphal entry, the cleansing of the temple, temple teachings, which include a lot of debate with the false teachers, which is related to the cursing of the fig tree, a speech that Jesus gives that's called the Olivet Discourse. He talks about end times. It's chapters 24 and 25. Mary anoints Jesus. Judas betrays Jesus. Then the Passover, a lot that happens in these chapters taking us all the way to the death and resurrection of Christ. Probably 40 to 45 more Sundays, which, Lord willing, that will take us to Resurrection Day 2023. So, all that to say this, we get to spend a year in the last week of Jesus. I I think that's kind of fun to think the next year we're giving our hearts and our lives to the study of the final week of Jesus here. Matthew certainly felt it was important because he spent all these chapters covering that last week. If you were a Jew in the first century and you were traveling, as Jesus and his disciples were, from Galilee to Jerusalem, you would most likely take the route that went along the Jordan River and then up a few hills to Jericho and then the arduous climb 20 miles up into the mountainous region where Jerusalem was. If you ever wonder why in the Bible it always talks about going up to Jerusalem, up to the temple, it's because they were not looking at maps, north, south, east, west, and the north would be up on a map. No, they were just describing their experience, right? When you went to Jerusalem, you would go up into the mountains. They always talked about going up into Jerusalem, up those hills and mountains, And most likely, they would make that trek beginning in Jericho. Well, that's where they are now. Since it does say down in verse 29, they were leaving Jericho. This is the setting. This is the region they're in. In and around Jericho, Jesus is teaching His men the way of the cross. He's on His way to the cross. And here in Matthew, for the third time, Jesus told the disciples His necessary path that he would go to the cross. He's calling upon them to see this and then follow this in a lesser way that they too would go on a path of the cross. He'd already told them, you must take up your cross and follow me, deny yourself. And so now he's both literally and figuratively showing them the way of the cross. The fundamental idea of the way of the cross is that we live in an era not of Christian dominion and power and authority in terms of visible or physical reign of Christ. We are in an era similar to that of Jesus and His disciples. We're in an era where people are going to persecute. People are going to hate the message of Christ and the cross. And Jesus has come to serve, not to have dominion. The dominion, the power, the judgment The authority to have dominion over his enemies comes at the second advent. This is the first advent. 
And so Jesus is teaching his men and subsequently teaches us about the way of the cross. There are three paragraphs here. The first has to do with that time, that era. The second has to do with servanthood, what we are to be and what we are to do now. And the third is a demonstration of Jesus' own servanthood, the story of him healing some blind beggars. Let's read this together. I'm going to read it aloud. Just follow along, starting in verse 17. I'm going to go all the way to the end of the chapter. We're going to study this entire section together, and then we're going to circle back around next week and look at the healing of these blind men in specific. But thematically, this is 17 to the end of the chapter is all bound together. It has to do with the way of the cross. Verse 17 of Matthew 20. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside. And on the way, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he'll be raised on the third day. And the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and Kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right and one at your left, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am able to drink? I am to drink? They said to him, We are able. He said to them, You will drink my cup. But to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant." And whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried, Lord, have mercy on us, Son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent, but they cried all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Stopping, Jesus called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. This is the word of God. When we think of the Netherlands, we think of tulips and windmills and bicycles and perhaps at this time of the year, ice skates. Religiously, Holland has been one of the most free places to practice religion, whatever religion you are, but it has not always been so. When the Reformation was happening, the Dutch Catholics often persecuted the Christians, the Christian Protestants killing and burning them in the town squares. Hundreds, if not thousands, were killed between the years of 1530 and 1570. One of them who was martyred was a young baker by the name of Hans Brett. Brett was particularly vocal about his faith, but he was not 
a, a real loud, arrogant, up-in-your-face man. He was a very peaceful man. In fact, the reason that he was a baker is not because that was his dream in life to become a baker. He uh, seized this job, really an effort to support his, his mother who had been widowed and some of his family members. It's not something he necessarily wanted to do. He did it just because he was a servant. In fact, in his church, though again he was vocal about his faith, in his church he took one of the lowliest roles, and that was to, to train and help the, the young and new Christians, the new Protestant believers in the church in their faith. Well, one day, the door of his bakery was smashed in, and in came the authorities for another roundup of Protestants. Hans was taken to a dungeon where he languished for some time, and some say again in that dungeon he demonstrated his sort of servant uh, uh, gospel presentation. He loved people, he served people, but he also was faithful to share the gospel of Jesus. So the prison guards hearing this came to him one day and they took his tongue, he made him pull his tongue through the bars of the prison and they drilled through his tongue with a screw and put a clamp on that screw. They called this a tongue screw. It actually was a, a, a architect or a relic of of torture that they used in the medieval times. To make sure it would work, they actually took a a searing uh, poker and seared the end of his tongue so that his tongue would swell and it would keep that device on there so he could not speak to anybody about faith and could not do anything but wallow in pain. Eventually, Hans was taken from his cell up to the town square and he was burned alive. His friend, who was the pastor of the church, came back to the place that Hans was burnt in the middle of the night, and he was towing through some of the ashes, and he saw that screw contraption laying there, the only thing that was left. And he picked that screw up. That tongue screw became an emblem for the Protestants in Holland. It was a picture of service. It was a picture of Faithfulness, it was a picture of a willingness to, to die for the sake of the gospel, to serve others. It was really a, a memorial that, that still even teaches us today that until Christ returns, we abide in a context of a fallen world, a, a world that is not like the message of Christ, a, a world that if it could, would put tongue screws on all of us and shut us all up. We abide in this context of a fallen world and we will be in this context until Jesus returns. This is the way of the cross. This is the era in which we live. Now, this truth is hard for a lot of Christians to accept. We're not in the era of power and judgment and dominion and authority, and it's hard for a lot of Christians to accept that we're not in that era. And it was hard for the first disciples to accept as well. And you see this in the flow of our text even today. Matthew Here's Jesus telling his, of his torture, of his capture, his torture, his accusations that coming at him wrongly, and his death, his trial and death. They, they completely ignore this. In fact, they ignore the resurrection, and they, they just go to their own glory and their own power, some sort of position. And so Jesus needed to teach them the lesson of the way of the cross. This was vital for them, and it's vital for us today. So let's go back to Jericho, spend some time with Jesus, spend some time with His disciples, learn this lesson 
with them. Down in verse 29, it says, I, I mentioned this a minute ago, they're on their way out of Jericho, so we can assume that was at least out of the, the old city of Jericho. They're in this Jericho vicinity. And you need to understand the importance of Jericho back then and just get a picture and just put ourselves with the disciples there with Jesus as he taught them about the way of the cross. Jericho was north and east of Jerusalem, about 15 miles as the crow flies, 20 miles. If you were to walk it again, it was uh, from Jerusalem, it would have been down some very steep uh, declines down the sides of, of mountains for, from Jericho, it would have been up these very treacherous mountains. Jericho, if you didn't know this, Jericho is one of the uh, oldest continuously inhabited cities in the world. In fact, along with Damascus, it, it is indeed considered the oldest continuously inhabited city for all of the human race. In fact, if you go to that place now, some of you have actually been on tours of the Holy Land, and you've been to Tel es Sultan, and you can look at those ruins, and they will take you layer through layer, which is sort of century after century after century of, of cities that inhabited Jericho, that people that live living there. It's pretty amazing. Of course, if you've been around church very much, you know Jericho because you know that Joshua, he fit the battle of Jericho, the old song says. Joshua and the people of Israel came to Jericho, went around the walls, and the walls came tumbling down. In fact, if you look at the, the passage and read that passage out of Joshua, what you find out is that the walls fell in on themselves. And if you go to the actual ruins of Jericho from that era, you find out, strangely enough, that Scripture is validated. The walls did not fall over. They did not fall or shake down as they would in an earthquake. They actually fell in on themselves, providing a ramp for the people of Israel to go in and take over the city. And the ruins, actually, the archaeological ruins actually teach us that same story. Again, one of those wonderful times you can see a validation of Scripture in archaeology. Jericho, back in the time of Joshua and in the time of Jesus, is what it still is today. It is a sort of desert oasis. It's a place where there are springs, there is fresh water there, and it's right there on the edge of the desert. To the west, there's harsh, dry mountains heading to Jerusalem. To the east, it would have been desert. Most Jews who were coming to Jerusalem, traveling to Jerusalem from the east or south or north, would have come through Jericho. Why is that important? Well, you know what's happening. This is Passover week. This is leading up to Passover week. That's a week that Jesus was executed was Passover week. And so all these thousands and thousands of people, Jerusalem, by the way, would triple in size during Passover week, thousands of people were traveling from all over Israel to get to Jerusalem, and most of them would have come through Jericho. Huge, massive crowds. I imagine a lot of them saying, you know, we have that distant cousin in Jericho. Why don't we stay there in that oasis for a little while before we have to go to Jerusalem? Now, thousands of people heading to Jerusalem through Jericho. And that may be a little more than what is necessary for understanding what's happening here, but I really want us to put ourselves there. It says there that, that Jesus took his disciples aside. He had to do that because there were crowds and crowds of people. In order to speak to them alone, he had to take them to the side. And you can imagine, maybe they're walking into Jericho or they're near, near Jericho. They're coming down that road from the north, and, and he had to actually go off the road and, and, and take them to the side in order to address them about the way of the cross. Now, you get the picture. Look at verse 17 again. And Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. He took the twelve disciples aside. On the way, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. 
The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. They said he'd be handed over to the priests and scribes who would then condemn him. They would then turn him over to the Roman authorities who would then crucify him. But also he mentions that he would be raised on that third day. You notice that Jesus says nothing about seizing control, taking over the government, occupying Jerusalem, setting up new power, none of that. His mission was to die and rise. That's the phase of redemptive history they were in. Was there joy in that time? Of course there was joy. Even amidst uh, pain and suffering, there was joy. There was healing. There were, in a concentrated sense, I think, even more healing than we see even today. There was provision. There was care. There was love. There was fellowship. There was joy. All of that was there. But this era, Jesus is telling them, is defined not by physical power and physical authority, but a spiritual kingdom that would be built on the truth of Christ crucified. This era would be defined by the cross, not a crown. And their job is, if they're to follow Jesus, is to deny themselves, take up their own cross, and have the willingness to forsake everything to follow Jesus. That's what disciples do in this era, Jesus says. Follow, they follow me to the cross. The cross is what defines them. Now, this is, in essence, what Jesus tells his disciples first about the way of the cross. If you're to follow me, if you're to join me in the way of the cross, you need to, number one, if you're taking notes, write this down, remember redemptive history. Remember redemptive history. Now, that's a mouthful, redemptive history, but I want to introduce you to it if you've not heard it before. It's an important phrase. I think every Christian ought to be familiar with this phrase, redemptive history, the history of redemption. This is the outline or the framework that God in His mission to glorify Himself, has saved people. The story of salvation, really. I heard a lecture on this subject one time, and the professor compared it to a puzzle. He said, you took a thousand-piece puzzle, you poured all the pieces out all over the table. Well, you might be able to piece a few things together if you're just looking at each individual piece. But what's the first thing you do when you put together a thousand-piece puzzle? You take the box top so you can see the whole picture. And you set it up so you can see the whole thing all at once. The tiny pieces you find on the table make make little sense without that that big picture in mind. Well, that's how a lot of people, sadly, they read the Bible just sort of piece by piece. They don't really understand the whole picture. They don't understand redemptive history. They try to assign some sort of practical or personal meaning, and they ignore the big picture. They ignore the story of redemption, the flow and the message of the whole Bible. And so they take bits and pieces and they try to make it applicable, but they end up making it very narcissistic. The story of David and Goliath is, for them, merely about how to slay the giants of their lives, how to overcome hardship, personal hardship. They don't see the big picture of who David is and the covenants and the promises to David about the Messiah. When they do this, they fail to see the big picture. They fail to ask that big question, what's God's purpose the grand story of redemption. So the stories and individual characters and history of the Bible end up being all about self 
personal fulfillment, personal encouragement, satisfying some emotional need. Some people call this narcissism. You've got exegesis, you've got eisegesis. You also have where you're reading yourself into every passage. That's called narcissism. Another common problem regarding redemptive history or the neglect of it is what is sometimes called over-realized eschatology. I guess some of you feel like you're going to seminary, but over-realized eschatology is when you take the back of the book and you think it applies to this moment right now. I remember there was a song when I was growing up, an old gospel song, I've read the back of the book and we win. Well, that's a good song as long as you remember it's in the back of the book. It's in the second advent of Christ. It's not right now. Well, this was a constant problem for the disciples of Jesus, wasn't it? They knew, rightly, they knew that Jesus is the king. They knew, they correctly assumed that that Jesus would one day rule and reign and take control of this old messed up, cursed earth. They understood that, they believed that, and and rightly they they put their faith in the one who would do that. But it was over-realized in the fact that they thought it was right now, at this moment. You going to do it now? All the way even after the crucifixion, Jesus trains them and teaches them. And right before the ascension, is it now? You going to set up your kingdom? Now, definitely the future reign and rule of Christ is an encouraging, hope, hopeful thing that we look to and it helps us in hard times. But if you pull away from all the pieces and you look at the grand picture, you realize, not yet. This era is a time... Well, the world goes on cursing and hating and rejecting Christ, even though Christ is building the kingdom spiritually. Look there at verse 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one on your right hand and one on your left, in your kingdom. Now, the sons of Zebedee, that's James and John. James and John's mother, she got one thing right. She believed that Jesus is the Messiah. Consequently, believing that he would come into his kingdom and he would reign and he would rule. She had that confidence. She had that faith. Even in the face of the doom and gloom of the crucifixion, she she had that faith that he would rule. That's good, but because she failed to understand redemptive history, because she failed to understand what era they were in that was leading to the cross, because she failed to do that, it led her to presumption and even sin. It's important for us to understand the era that we're in. She just brushed aside the words of Christ. That's what people do with the Bible. I think that's one of the most popular way of preaching. You just brush aside the hard stuff about this era. You brush aside ideas like redemptive history and the big picture and the, the, the phases of God's kingdom and just set that aside and just focus on what makes me feel good. That's what a lot of people do with the Bible, and it's an act of presumption and even sin. But we must see all these things in their context, and that's what Jesus is doing here. He's, he's positioning them in their minds. He's, he's stating for them their position in redemptive history. We need to look at their, their context leading up to the cross and our context leading away from the cross and ultimately to the second coming of Christ. Now, that would be the first thing I would say about remembering redemptive history. A, understand our era. What era are we in? What era are we in? Now, it doesn't matter if you're pre-mill or all-mill or post-mill or whatever, you 
would agree, Jesus is not physically reigning at this moment. We are in an era of suffering. We are in an era of hardship. We are in an era of persecution. I think we're starting to see this. It seems like every generation we get a little bit closer to where our country has gotten around to persecuting Christians. Our country to the north certainly has decided they want to clamp down on these Christian rascals who teach the Bible. We're in an era of hardship and persecution. But James and John's mother, like a lot of us, wanted to just skip over this reality. Let's get to the good stuff. Jesus had just explained to them, this is the era where we are. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to die. I'm going to be tried. She just skips over all of that and starts talking about dominion and reign and rule. Jesus had said nothing about reigning and ruling and having co-regents on his throne, but that's what she was proposing. In essence, he responds to her, the era that we're in is leading to the cross, not a throne. Our time, our era, we do look forward to the throne of Christ, but we're not in that. We are in the era where there is hardship and death and even persecution. Paul told this to the Philippians who are in our era, Philippians 1.27, it's not only been granted to you to believe, but also to suffer. He told them later in chapter 3, it's his, his objective to know Jesus and the power of His resurrection. Yay, that's great, the power of resurrection, I want that. But it doesn't end there. Paul says he wants to know the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death. Paul wants to understand persecution and hardship and tribulation as Jesus did. I love what Paul said to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 1.5, just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. Though we do indeed live in an era that mirrors the sufferings of Jesus, we do find comfort in this era. It's not all suffering. I heard this last week, we read it from John 17, beginning in verse 14, Jesus is praying for us, the people in our era, but now I'm coming to you and these things I speak into the world, Jesus, of course, speaking about His ascension, I'm coming to you and these things I speak in the world that they, speaking of His followers, they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world but that you keep them from the evil one. They're in the world that we are in the world that hates us. We have the word that Jesus has given to us, but we're in this world, we're in this era where there is great hatred for the things of God. You heard this today from Peter's words, 1 Peter 4.12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Why not? Why shouldn't we be surprised by trials? Because we live in this era. It's marked as an era marked by inner redemption. It's marked by a spiritual kingdom growing and growing, but it's also marked by a time of great suffering, a great torment of persecution, of hardship, of tribulation. So this should help us, this truth. Understanding our era, understanding our place in redemptive history should indeed comfort us. One, that this is the norm. This is what this era is all about. This is the norm. It's not some, something that God is not watching over or did not plan. 
And two, one day this era will be over. Jesus gave them this lesson. Look at verse 22. Jesus answered, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink the cup, but to sit at my right hand and my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. In other words, the cup here is hardship, it's sickness, it's persecution, it's death. You'll drink that, he says. I can assure you, you will drink the cup. But glory and reward and the end state, that's the Father's to dispense. As my disciples, you will join me in suffering. That's the era that you're in. Understand the era that you're in. Now, this brings us to the second truth about remembering redemptive history. B, it is to drink the cup of hardship. What in the world does that mean? Why would he say, you're going to drink this cup? I think we've seen this, some of this already. I wrote down a list. What does it mean to accept this as your era? What does it mean to drink the cup of difficulty or hardship? One is to see that hardship is not abnormal. That's why it says that in 1 Peter. You think hardship is something strange? You think a fiery trial is abnormal? No, this is the norm for this era. This is, this is something that was mapped out. Now, I'm not suggesting, neither is Jesus, that life is just a bunch of hardships strung together. For most people, that's not true. For some, it, it would be true, but for most of us, that's not true. We have joy, we have happiness, we have times of rest and relaxation. Most of us have joy, but it does mean that our joy is tainted with pain and suffering, and that's the norm. You get that in your mind. Life will be a lot easier if you don't have this high expectation. I found this about people just in general, even my own self. When I have an expectation that's too high, and that expectation is disappointed, I'm frustrated. When you have this, this idea that you're always going to get the promotion, and you're always, things are going to go well for you financially, and your whole family is going to be perfect, and everything's going to work out just the way you want it, if that's your expectation, that everything's going to be perfect, you're going to be grossly disappointed in life. Because this life is not the era of ease. It is an era of hardship. Yes, there will be joy. Yes, there will be happiness. Yes, you find great comfort, just as Jesus found comfort. Yes, you will find these things. Yes, you will find fellowship and joy and love, but it's an eternal thing. It's a spiritual thing. It is not something physically that's realized until the return of Christ. So one idea that I wrote down about drinking the cup of hardship is realizing that hardship is not abnormal. It's also realizing that one day hardship will end. That's not over-realized eschatology. It's just saying we know that one day this will be over. One day, we have read the back of the book, one day it does end in victory. Another thing about hardship that I wrote down about drinking in hardship, drinking the cup of hardship, is that it puts you in good company. Jesus calls us to join Him in suffering and death. We're joining Him. We're joining other people who've gone before us. We join Him as the ones whom the world hates. We join Him as, as hopeful and, yes, joyous, God-focused people in spite of our hardship and suffering. Let me tell you something. Your, your testimony will be enhanced when you face this world with this kind of joy and this kind of hope, when you face cancer, when you face hardship, and people see the way you're dealing with hardship is not like everyone else. 
as troubled, as frustrated, as seeing as a, a bypass, as not the perfect plan of God for your life. You see this as, as some kind of intrusion. When you see it as part of God's plan and you welcome it with joy, you're speaking that you have fellowship with Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross. Drinking the cup of hardship puts us in good company. So let's drink the cup of suffering, of hardship. I always find it interesting in our fight as Christians for our uh, constitutional rights to do what we need to do, and I, I think there is a constitutional right and we ought to do what we can do to fight against the government. In spite of that, I always find it interesting that there are some Christians out there that just think that life should be without any kind of persecution or any kind of hardship whatsoever. The fact of the matter is, every single country, every man-made country, no matter how godly its roots, gets around to persecuting and hating Christians. This is just part and parcel of the era that we are in. Drink the cup of hardship. Expect it. Understand it. It's coming. It's happening. It's happening already all over the world. It's starting to happen even here. Third thing that Jesus mentions here is to crucify, in terms of, in terms of understanding the era, be, uh, accepting this time, is to crucify the spirit of competition. Now, whether it was planned or not, whether this mom of James and John acted out on her own or it was something that they all put together or not, we don't really know. What do her actions cause? Well, basically, it's everyone sees it as James and John putting themselves in front of everyone else. It's presumptuous, it's arrogant, it's rushing in for glory when they did not deserve it. Sort of reminds me as a kid when you say shotgun, right, on the way to the car. Shotgun! That's what James and John are doing here. And it's immature because it's a sinful display of competition. Uh, the Bible doesn't condemn all sorts of competition. There are positive things said about sport and activity. I don't think there's something in the Bible against board games or involving yourself in some sort of sport. Those kind of, that kind of competition can even be helpful. What is condemned is the sinful spirit of competition, which arises out of pride. It's, it's, it's basically deeply holding to, the fact, holding to the idea that you may be better than others, and you want some venue where you can pro prove that you're better. And Jesus says there's no place in the kingdom for this spirit. Now, this is given to us sort of as an aside. It's just one verse, Jesus says, it shouldn't be so among you. This kind of attitude, this something that shouldn't happen among you, and this, all the other disciples sort of start to grumble against James and John. This causes strife. Now, the idea is this. In this world of hardship, in this world in which we suffer, in this era, this time and redemptive history that we're facing, hardship and tribulation, the last thing we need to do is introduce into the equation an attitude of prideful competition. Pride that drives us to a spirit of arrogance and pride. As we face this world and suffer together with Jesus, don't have a sense of competition. Instead, be humble. And this leads Jesus, really, this is the segue, this is what's happening here. This is the segue that leads Jesus to the second point about the way of the cross. What is this? Number two, seek to serve others. 
As you face this era of redemptive history, as we go through this together, as we face all this, seek to serve others. That's really what the rest of the chapter is about, serving others. Verse 25, Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. Whoever will be great among you must be your servant. Whoever will be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life a ransom for many. I think there's three lessons we see in these verses, and then we'll finish. A, reject the world's system for the kingdom. Jesus is commenting on a system that we are all familiar with. It's in this world, with few exceptions, of course. It's in your job. It's in the military. It's in your school. It's in your company. It's in your business. For the most part, and obviously there will be some exceptions, but for the most part, there is one common ingredient to prominence. It is self-promotion. I'm sure there are other things that will get you raises and promotions, but by and large, what do you do to get promoted? You promote yourself. You want the next pay grade? You want the next level of power? You want the next level of authority? Well, you promote yourself. It's baked into the systems of this world. I've learned that there are a lot of people out there that are not actually good at their job. And yet they keep on seeming to get promoted. How is that? Well, they become very good at learning what gets them promoted. Not really what their job is. They're not seeking to do the best they can where they are, seeking to find integrity and a skill. No, they're just consumed with promotion, self-promotion. Now, this is the system to which Jesus is referring. When it says Gentiles there, he's talking about the secular world. Verse 26, it shall not be so among you. In other words, that is a system in the world. And I understand we all kind of live in these systems and there are things we have to do, maybe even things we grit our teeth and do. We, we live in that system, but he's talking about the system of believers, the relationships, the system in a church, the relationships inside the church. He says, it shall not be so among you. You live a selfless life, not a self-promoting life. You pursue the gain and advancement of others, not yourself. You seek to lift others up, not yourself. About every other year, there, there is someone who comes to our church. Usually it's a man. It's been a woman before, but it's usually a man. And they come to the church, and they, we begin to talk to them about membership and... Usually a guy, he's telling us how great he is and how many things he's accomplished and what gift he is going to be to this poor church who really needed him to come along and solve all our problems. And There was a fellow like this some years ago, and he would come to my Sunday school class. I used to teach the pastor's class, and he would come to my Sunday school class, and he would sit on the very front row. And at the end of the class, I would say, do you have any questions? And he would raise his hand. He would never ask a question. I would call on his name, and he would turn his back to me, and he'd give a little lesson to the class, a little follow-up lesson to the class. He wasn't even a member of the church at that point. He came to me and said, I'd like to be a member of the church. I said, well, sir, are you familiar with Luke chapter 14, verse 10? Uh, no, never heard of that one. 
What about Proverbs 25, 6 and 7? So you don't really know all the Bible, do you? No. You know what those verses say? It says, when you come to a banquet, sit at the end of the table and be asked to move up. Don't sit at the head of the table and be asked to move down. And I explained to him, I said, you know, you sitting up front, raising your hand, facing, no one's asked you to teach this church. He said, oh, man, you know, a lot of pastors have told me that before. I, I need to do that. I need to work on that. Yeah. I said, if you would like, you may be the best teacher this church has ever seen, but you start by serving people. You prove yourself to be a servant of people. And he lasted about two months. He came to me, well, God's called me off to do some kind of leadership thing, and I'm, I'm going to go. There's all these people who put themselves ahead of others. They seek to promote themselves. They seek to get ahead. They seek to sit at the head of the table to be seen by people, to take some kind of prominent role in the church, prominent role among other Christians. And Jesus says it should not be so among you. By the way, even if that's your goal as a Christian, to, to seek to serve, to love others, to take the back seat, to allow others, especially in the context of a church, if you, you, you do this, don't expect that from everybody, especially don't expect it when you go out into the world. They're not trying to live by these rules, right? They're not trying to listen to the words of Jesus. They're trying to promote themselves. You know, I found that a lot of Christians get frustrated because the rest of this world, especially our country, is not living by the same standards we are, and we get real frustrated with that. Well, that's not to be expected. And Jesus looks out of the world and says, they live in a certain system. They have a completely different system than us. Don't expect them to live in the same system we do. Jesus says, we have this different system. We are to lift others up. We put others before ourselves. You as a believer, you do the opposite of the world system. What is that opposite? Be, follow Jesus in service of others. Verse 26, it shall not be so among you. Whoever be, would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, I want to make you sure you understand this. Jesus is not saying, hey, I want to give you the inside scoop. Pretend to be humble. Pretend you're a servant, and oh, man, they'll love you at that church, and they'll, they'll put you on a pedestal. That's how you achieve greatness. He's not saying greatness is being the number one position. In fact, that's the opposite of what he's saying. Greatness is not defined by position. That's, that's his point. Greatness is, is, is demonstrated, greatness is found when you become like Christ. He's not giving, giving us an inside line on how to be great in a church because greatness is not determined by position or power. Greatness in the kingdom is not determined by your authority or what gifts you have or how many people you know or how many people follow you on social media. These things are absolutely irrelevant in the kingdom. That's the point that Jesus is making. They get you nowhere. In the kingdom, yes, there is authority structure. Getting with Jesus over the church. Even in churches, there is authority structures. Families, there's authority structures. And what Jesus is saying is, I, as a pastor, even though there is authority and position here, I, as a pastor, am no greater than anyone else. I can assure you there are people in a church who, are, who have better, more integrity than I do, who have better character than I do, who are better people overall than I do, and that is what defines greatness, not position or power or authority. Grace is, great, greatness is not found in position or role. It's found in integrity. It's found in the fruit of the Spirit, which here Jesus says is manifest in serving others. 
Of course, Jesus' own greatest act is not an act of dominance. It's an act of service. He gave His life to ransom many. And all the limited tone when people say, Amen. He gave His life. Now, to punctuate this truth, Matthew tells us what's happening, what happens on the other side of Jericho. The story of the blind men, including Bartimaeus, the blind men outside the gate of Jericho. We're, again, we're going to look at that story more intently next time because there's a lot to learn of it. But thematically, this is all tied together because this is a demonstration of Jesus' own service to others. Verse 29, follow along. As they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed behind them. Behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard Jesus was passing by, they cried out. Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent, but they cried out all the more. Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called to them and said, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus in pity touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. Third lesson about seeking to serve. Serve the lowly. Serve the lowly. This will look different for everyone. Not all of, all of us can do homeless ministry. Not all of us have the ability to reach out to those who are at the bottom in terms of pay or position at work. Maybe you are at the bottom in terms of position and pay. Maybe you're self-employed, for instance. Not all of us are at school and can reach out to the kids who are ostracized. Not all of us can afford to give finances to those in need. But all of us can find people who are lowly. All of us in our own lives, in our own context, can find people who are lowly, can't we? And we can love them. You want to walk on the way to the cross with Jesus? You want to be like Jesus? On the way to the cross, you seek to serve them. You love them. Here's Jesus coming out of the Jericho. He could have said, you know, I, I am up to big business here. I'm getting ready to be killed. But in this week, I'm going to be dead. I don't have time to deal with these people. But instead, he's serving. They're important to him. Everyone else says they're not important. Everyone else says, quit bothering Jesus. He's too important. Jesus looks at them and says, what do you want? Now, just, again, this is all tied together. We know it is because this is exactly what the mother of James and John, that's what Jesus said to the mother of James and John. What do you want? What she wants is promotion. What she wants is power for her sons. What do these blind men want? Simply mercy. Have mercy on us. Bid us see. Jesus ministers and blesses them. Jesus blesses the lowly. Find and serve the lowly. Again, it's not the same for everyone, but find a way to serve the lowly. COVID has certainly put a damper on our organized efforts as a church, but uh, leading up to COVID, we used to go down and do a ministry and give out meal, meal to a couple times a year to uh, those who were less privileged, and the objective was not just to get uh, food in their stomachs, it was to create relationships, to get to know folks, to learn about them, to hear their stories, and possibly, if God permitted, we could give them the gospel if they hadn't heard it before. A number of our family groups have done things, especially before COVID, not so much now, but before COVID, you could go and do these things 
Well, my group went a couple times to the Fisher House and helped folks with uh, sick family members. Find the lowly at work. Find the lowly at school. Find the lowly in your neighborhood. Seek to serve them. Serve others in the church. Serve your fellow NBCers. Also find the lowly outside the church like Jesus did here and serve them. That is what we do on the way to the cross. You want to be like Jesus? You want to follow him on the way to the cross? You seek to serve. Let's pray that God would give us this spirit. Father, as we watch Jesus on his way to the cross, what a beautiful testimony of an understanding that redemptive history teaches us, the picture of the whole Bible teaches us that we're in an era of hardship and difficulty until Christ returns. Help us not to be frustrated with this era. Help us to love you and love others in this era. And Lord, help us do what Jesus did here and what he would demonstrate ultimately on the cross, and that is to serve others. Lord, we want to serve others on our way in this life. Lord, we know that if Jesus tarries, we will all die one day. And as we walk towards our death, that we do it with the attitude and spirit of Jesus, seeking to serve others, rejoicing in Christ and having hope and being comforted in the Spirit. Help us walk in the way in which Jesus walked, on the way to the cross. We ask this in His name.